This sermon series is in its second week now. We have entitled it, When Christians Get It Wrong. Um, This Sunday in particular, there's a sense in which we may have bitten off more than we could chew. I had that conversation with Jonathan a little bit earlier today. Um, Just from the perspective of the subject matter at hand, when we consider Christians and science and politics, this is not something that can be easily handled in 15 minutes. And so we will wade into this subject matter, and then I encourage you to explore the depths of this even further as you have the chance to reflect on this sermon. You do reflect on the sermons later, right? You do. Okay, sure. And I encourage you, I encourage you to take the opportunity to deepen your faith and to to be a part of what Christ is seeking to do in the world. There's another passage of Scripture. We'll get to the Gospel passage in just a few moments, but there's another passage of Scripture that I want to to bring before us right now, which is from the very beginning of the Bible. If you have your Bible still handy with you there, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Listen to these words that are so familiar, so familiar. Listen to them again with the freshness of ears attuned to God. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters And let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening. And there was morning. The second day. Some of you may remember that toward the beginning of this year, there was a much publicized debate on the subject of creationism versus evolution. Do you remember that? Back at the 1st of February, actually it was. And it was a debate that was staged between Bill Nye, the science guide, if you've been watching sixth grade TV um, at all, Bill Nye, the science guy, and then Ken Ham, who is a young earth creationist. They met not exactly on a level plateau. They were meeting on the stage at Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. I tip my hat to Bill Nye for going to a ground that uh, was very much the opposite of what he believed about how the world came to be. I'm interested in going to the Creation Museum. Some of you may have been there. 
I've not been there, but I am interested in going just to observe and to see how the story is displayed in such a different way, I understand, than the way that I find myself absorbing this story myself. It's interesting, Ken Ham used his interpretation of Genesis to argue against evolution, as everyone expected him to, and specifically to state that the universe was less than 7,000 years old. Um, It's not a stance that is unfamiliar in our day and age. There are many proponents of this way of thinking. Um, Ken Ham, back in 2008, uh, made this statement. He said, my father was always very adamant about one thing. If you can't trust the book of Genesis as literal history, then you can't trust the rest of the Bible. After all, every single doctrine of biblical theology is founded in the history of Genesis 1 through 11. My father had not developed his thinking in this area as much as we have today at Answers in Genesis. That's the organization that Ken Ham is a part of. But he clearly understood that if Adam wasn't created from dust and that if he didn't fall into sin, as Genesis states, then the gospel message of the New Testament can't be true either. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? This proponent of creationism, a young earth, was met with the argument of Bill Nye, which he fully expected. And Bill Nye simply used sort of a shotgun approach to starting the dialogue. Bill Nye focused on the scientific method of asking questions and gathering evidence. He explained that it is not unlike when you examine the rings on a tree that may have been cut down, simply asking the questions of how old this tree is, what did it experience in its life? That science has no greater purpose than to simply ask the questions of how things occur. Of course, who you believe won the debate depends greatly upon your perspective of who was going into the debate to begin with, right? That's the way it always is. If someone represents the way in which we think, then we sort of think that they do the best work of representing who we are as well. And so there are people on both sides that think that their individual, their proponent, was the winner. I read an interesting reflection by someone, though, that was swayed by the debate, who had gone in as a creationist and fully admitted, he said, I still have such respect for those persons around me who also 
are young earth creationists. I understand where they are, but I can tell you that for me, he said, Bill and I opened the book to a different understanding of science and the purpose of science. And for that, it was a crucial win in Bill Nye's favor. Ken Ham, you see, was not only defending the idea of the shortness of the life of this universe, he actually was defending the Bible And even beyond that, his defense was a defense of God because we know that that is the established place of religion, isn't it, in this world? And it has been seemingly since the beginning of time that those church people find it in their job description, we find it in our job description, to defend God in every way we possibly can in order that he might be known in this world. But there is danger in doing that. Grave danger in doing that. The church has made so many errors. In fact, it is not possible to go through all. And so I will simply state before you that the quintessential mistake that the church perhaps made in regard to science was made in the 17th century with a fellow named Galileo. Does that bring up any memory? You know the story I'm imagining as you begin to reflect about Galileo, this man who truly loved God, and yet he loved science. In fact, his life was claimed by science. Everywhere he looked, he was thinking scientific thoughts. He was asking questions. How did this come to be? In fact, as he looked up at the heavens through his, his uh, eyes and through his telescopes, he began to see the planets and the stars and the courses that they were tracing. And he began to think, maybe Copernicus wasn't wrong. Well, what was this about? He knew that he had been told from an early age that the church was this immovable object. In fact, he had been told by the church that believed so deeply in Scripture from First Chronicles and several passages in Psalms that the world is fully established and shall not be moved. It was at the center of all things. But as Galileo looked at the heavens, he saw other evidence there and suggested that the earth was circling the sun, not the other way around. And of course, now this is common knowledge today. I'm not bringing anything new to you here, right? I don't know of anybody. I don't know of a soul that would believe today that the sun orbits the earth. But it was revolutionary at the time of Galileo, and a tribunal was called in 1633 in the Roman Catholic Church, pronounced that Galileo was a heretic and put him under house arrest. They would have gone further with that, but he assented to their beliefs with his fingers crossed behind his back. And the church, the church 
set very sure in its path, began its work, its impossible work, of stamping out this demon called science. It's a very sad path that the church chose to take at that time. And it's a sad path that we too would take it this day. You see, I am not a scientist. You probably know that very well. I don't want anyone checking my transcript, but take it from me that these were not the courses in which I excelled. I don't understand all of what Galileo was saying. In fact, I only glimpsed just little parts of the brilliance. But my concern is for the church to see the damage it is doing by closing off the conversation, especially among those young adults in this culture today. Surveys of young adults show that they are leaving the church because the church will not entertain the questions that are being raised for them. These persons who wish to understand the house are being told in one way or the other that those are inappropriate questions for you to raise in church. In fact, let me tell you, about six months ago, I received an email from a young adult that I had known a few years back when he was a youth in our church youth group. He started the email. It was a very lengthy e- email. But he started the, the email saying, in your, in your preaching, I found you to be a person that would, would, was loving, but also would, uh, would entertain the questions of our day and age. And I thought to myself, I'm glad that he got that message. But what concerned me was, as he went on in that email, he, he said that he had a friend, a dear friend of his from high school that had recently in conversation with him challenged his belief in Christ. And so much so had it bothered him that he was at the point of jettisoning the church. Now, that's unfortunate on two counts. One, it's unfortunate that his friend, who was this good individual but had a very very conservative way of looking at the young earth creationism, that he had represented it in such a judgmental way toward this other young man who was seeking a broader understanding based on things that he had learned over the course of his college training. I think that this young man is at best an agnostic now because of that. I do hope that he will see himself still under the umbrella of what is possible for the church. 
You and I don't know what to do with some questions. Oh, we tell our young people to go out and to think. In fact, we'd love to quote uh, the writings of Dr. Seuss uh, from kindergarten on through to graduation. You remember that book, Oh, the Places You Go? How many of you have given that as a graduate's gift? Oh, the places you'll go. Here's one of the quotes from that book. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know. You are the guy who will decide where to go. Think left and think right and think low and think high. Oh, the things you can think of if only you try. But we don't believe that. In fact, we don't want that going on. Not around here. <laughs> because thinking is dangerous business when you take it too far. We need to be a church that is not so frightened at the possibilities of where science might lead. Science is not God's enemy. Science is not God's enemy. Science teaches how things unfold. You and I, as we look to the scriptures, we need to understand that this is a book of faith. It teaches not so much how, but it ventures toward the why and the who. These are the important questions. This is the theology. This is the theology that you and I are gathering around. You, you know how John started his story, don't you? When he was so overcome with emotion that he had to put pen to paper and tell the story of Jesus Christ. He didn't want to start at the birth of Jesus. He wanted to get to the very beginning. You remember how it started it, don't you, in his gospel? He said, in the beginning was the word. Now, you go up to a scientist and ask him, do you understand what's going on there? And the scientist is not going to try to work for some kind of empirical truth on that subject because it is non-provable, right? But let me ask you, is that statement true? In the beginning was the word. Do you know it to be true? You're darn truth and we know it to be true. This is why we are gathered here in this place. That the essence of who Christ is is in mixed in with the essence of who God is because they are one and the same from the beginning of time until now. You and I should not be so challenged with the questions. Our work is to do the work of theology. I can remember as a child that I loved to take things apart. Maybe you were like that too, but if I could find a small screwdriver in the house, particularly I love to take clocks apart. <laughs> and, and so I, there's, I, would, I would gather up a clock from, from there in the house and I would begin removing the screws at the back and take it off. And then of course there were more screws and so I would begin doing the work. Of course, the problem with this is that I could never put it back together again, you know. <laughs> The clock was doomed when I got my hands on it. But I do distinctly remember from those early days of, of looking at the interior of the clock that 
that I was mesmerized that somebody could build it, something that was so detailed. And then it occurred to me, not only did somebody build this, somebody had to come up with the idea of this. And I, I could hardly fathom that. I could not think of the mind that would invent such an object that had an understanding of such detail. Now, some people just look at the face of the clock and they think, well, this is the time, right? And that's good enough, you know, in some ways for some folk. <coughs> but I can tell you that there's a world that has questions. And we need to permit, permit the questions. Because if we do not, the world will think we don't care about the questions. I have a couple of instructions for you. One is, if you missed the debates between Bill Nye and Ken Ham, listen to them. Listen to them. You'll be fascinated with it. Even if you don't listen to all of the debates, if you could listen to part of it and get a sense of where we must choose to hang our hat. Listen to the debates. You can look this up very easily on YouTube. Don't Google that right now. <laughs> but listen to the debates and ask yourself the question, where am I on this subject? And then the second instruction that I have for you is that some night this week, just get up and go out in the darkest corner of your yard and look up above you at the stars that trace their way above your head. And tell me if the psalmist didn't describe it for you O oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. If you look, if you really look with the eyes of the theologians that we purport ourselves to be, you will begin to see the poetry of what God is doing in our world even still okay so let's move on to another matter here and that is the matter that Bob read for us from the gospel according to Matthew the story is set in motion by the Pharisees they're the ones that got the Herodians to go to Jesus. Even though the Pharisees could not see eye to eye with the Herodians, they decided to use the Herodians to get at Jesus. Use any means necessary to do him damage. And so the Herodians came. It's another instance of how Christians get it so wrong the damage that we do in politicizing faith, working our angles to politicize our faith. 
About 10 years ago, Jim Wallace, who was very well known in Washington quarters for being a man who spoke out on justice and issues related to poverty, that he came out with a bumper sticker. Um, I had developed a respect for Jim Wallace years ago. I went with a cousin of mine to Washington, D.C. Uh, some 30, 35 years ago to visit Sojourner's headquarters. And Jim Wallace was there in his office, busy about his work. And before we knew it, he said, he said, it's lunchtime. Y'all got lunch plans. And we thought, well, he's going to take us out. And all of a sudden, I realized, no, he's not going to take us out. He pointed over to the corner of the room, and on the floor there sat this crock pot that he had filled with water and a few onions. That was going to be our lunch. Onion soup. And I've never tasted better onion soup over that little conversation that we had that day. What a fascinating individual. About 10 years ago, he was so concerned about the politicization, politicalization of our nation and how that seems to happen every four years. But he was concerned about the faith aspect, the faith spin that was being put on it. And so he came up with a bumper sticker that said, God is not a Republican, dot, 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 or a Democrat. I thought to myself, I got to get one of these bumper stickers. <laughs> and so I put one on my car. I, I went to my early morning prayer group at McDonald's over in Dublin, Georgia at that time. And uh, one of my dear friends in that group was coming out and he saw my bumper sticker first thing. And he said, oh, he said, let me look at this. Let me look at this. And he said, oh, I see. God is not a Republican or a Democrat and certainly not a Democrat, he said. <laughs> he wasn't going to let anything ride. How is it that you come down on these issues and what kind of spirit? That's the question. What kind of spirit is it that you have? In this political arena that is so fed with polarization, you and I need to remember that Jesus was this bridge builder. I'm not talking about this person that had simply found this place of moderation. He had strong, strong opinions. But these opinions were shared in very loving ways. You and I have not learned the secret of that. When we allow ourselves to be so affected by the slander and gossip and mean-spirited rhetoric and the disrespect that is a part particularly of the media pundits, is this who we want to represent us? I tell you, we listen to people on the news that we wouldn't feel comfortable with in our living rooms. Is this what you want to have as your legacy? That you too united with their slander. 
the Apostle Paul was very clear on this. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, he said, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. The Herodians were set so firmly in their beliefs that they didn't care what damage they did. That's why the Pharisees really didn't like them. They were using them in this situation. They put the question to Jesus, and it was certain that they were being hypocritical. Jesus saw it immediately. They said, you're a person that is fair, you treat people right, and you, you are someone that is, is renowned in our area and respected for his opinions. And so, um, should we pay taxes or not? Well, this is a question that they already knew the answer to because they were Herodians. They were proponents of King Herod. Of course, they were for paying taxes. But they knew that they were putting Jesus in quite a place because if Jesus said, um, yes, we should pay taxes, then the people in the streets that were listening to Jesus would turn against him perhaps because they knew that taxation represented something that was very, very oppressive that the Roman government had set in place. But if Jesus said, don't pay your taxes, then Jesus was not a law-abiding citizen. Jesus asked, let me see the coin. He said, whose portrait is on it? Caesar's. Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, he was not just a slippery politician trying to get away. Jesus was trying to speak truth. That you and I quibble and fight over issues that are just there in our world. Let's get past this so that we can get on to the important thing. And what is the important thing, Jesus? That is to give God what is God's. We need to get this right, not just Jesus, but we need to get this right. Jesus did not add to the polarization. He was a bridge, not unlike all of the pamphlets that Billy Graham, bless his heart, has distributed by the millions over the course of his life. You've seen these, haven't you? The diagram of the cross as being the bridge. I tell you that Jesus was a bridge builder even before the cross, and we know that he has been since the cross. Jesus, by his very nature, in the beginning was the word, Jesus is this integral bridge between who we are and where we are and where God wishes us to be. Let me admit something to you today. It, it's hard to preach, sometimes more so than others, because, and you may not be aware, that I have to choose my words very carefully. I have to choose very carefully for two reasons. One, 
is that I have a concern that you might find out who I actually am. (laughs) And two, my concern is that you might not find out who I actually am. That's a hard place to be. Hard place to be. When I look out at you, you may not be worried over it, but I look at you and I see the same thing going on in the pew. There is a lot of diversity here. Do you realize it? We don't all think the same. We, we all don't act the same. There's a lot of diversity here in this place. It does not concern me so much whether you are conservative enough or liberal enough. Let me tell you, I love you. I love you for who you are. Now, that may, that, it may be at times that I will go home to Sue and I'll say, that dadgum person (laughs) just doesn't think right. (laughs) But in my heart, when I look at you, I am not thinking that I have an expectation that you have to believe everything that I believe. I love you for who you are, where you are. And that's all I expect of you as well. Not toward me, but toward the world around us. You see, this is the, this is the issue. Has the world felt that the church doesn't care enough to be lovingly conservative or lovingly liberal so that they have a place to come and fellowship in the midst of being called in Christ. This has gone on long enough. (laughs) Thank you for your spirit, for your understanding. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we know that we are a people who cause more problems for you than we should. We ask first that you would forgive us for misrepresenting the way in which you think, misrepresenting the way in which Christ presented the good news. We ask that you would help us in this day and age that we would be so united as a people, even in the midst of our differences, that we would be willing to accept the questions of those that might think even quite differently than us, and that we would lovingly engage in even heated debate, but loving debate over these important matters that are before us in this day and age. O Father, help us.
May your spirit always be present. Help us to be your church as you meant it to be. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.